What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, our guest is Kathy Penny. Kathy is a retired psychiatric nurse. Uh, She was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia and spent three years in a psychiatric hospital. She has since recovered without medication using psychotherapy. And she's the subject of the book by her doctor, psychiatrist Daniel Dorman, called Dante's Cure. She was also interviewed in the film by therapist Daniel Mackler, Take These Broken Wings. Uh, Kathy is also the founder of Desert Gathering, which is a unique holistic healing friendship community in Southern California. Thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio, Kathy Penny. Thank you, Will. It's great to be on your show. So you've had a really incredible journey from someone who was a psychiatric patient in really extreme distress and you know, kind of considered one of the chronic sort of lost cause cases of, of catatonic schizophrenia. And now you have become a psychiatric nurse. You're now retired and you have become um, you know, a community organizer and a healer. And it's just really amazing to have you and hear your story. Why don't you get started by telling us a little bit about you know, your childhood and then what was sort of the formative experience that um, you came from when you started to have your extreme states and then ended up um, in a psychiatric hospital? Well, um, I was uh, the oldest of five. Um, my mom was a widow, uh, and I was 10 months old at the time when my biological father was killed in the Korean War. And at the same time, my mom was pregnant with my sister, Cindy. And so um, as a little, little girl, even younger than five, I could remember uh, my mom going through depression. Uh, and when you're a child, uh, you don't understand all the circumstances of things. So I thought it had to do with me, that I was the reason. She would get really sad and withdrawn and she not would communicate. Be, yeah, withdrawn and sad. And uh, after my sister Cindy was born, both sets of grandparents would take turns taking us to their home to stay for days. You know, when my mom was so depressed, she wanted to be alone. And so when that happened, there was always this thought, you know, uh, are we going to see our mom again? Or she like us? Those kind of thoughts. I could remember feeling uh, that always having a sense of fear regarding being left. So it sounds like they weren't really telling you very much or supporting you to understand what was what was going on with your mom. Well, I think my grandparents, they thought they were protecting us by not talking to us. And again, I was about five, four or five years old uh, at this time when the grandparents took Cindy and I to stay with them for different periods of time. Uh, and I think they, too, had a hard time dealing with depression themselves. Not that they suffered from it, but they didn't know how to relate to my mom who was going through it. So I think they tried to do their best with what 
uh, tools they had at the time. Like our grandparents were really loving and they would take Cindy and I uh, to Knott's Berry Farm, Disneyland. And so there was always love there. And when they would bring Cindy and I back home to my mom, she would be out of the depression or she wouldn't be as depressed. And when she was not depressed, uh, she was a loving, even when she was depressed, she was loving, but she didn't really uh, express it. So when we came back home uh, and she was not depressed or as depressed, she was more able to be demonstrative about, you know, showing the love and everything and doing things with us and being there, being present for us. When did things start to get difficult for you in terms of having problems with emotional distress or extreme states? Where it really started was when when my mom uh, remarried to another Marine, um, my stepdad. And um, at the time, uh, it was not that noticeable that he drank a lot. But uh, I'd say three or four years into the marriage, it became really apparent that he had a drinking problem. But this was back in the 50s, and he was an officer in the Marine Corps, and it was like it was uh, something that was kept silent. And it affected how he uh, related to us, Cindy and I, as uh, his, his children, his stepchildren. My mom did have three more children with him. And so there was always this feeling with me. I worried about my younger sisters, my younger siblings, because when my dad would get home from work around 4 o'clock, he would immediately start in on the rum and coke and uh, stay with it up until around 9 at night. But during that time, he would be very verbally and emotionally abusive, just really to my mom, uh, to us kids. And it was hard to be in that environment. And I was sensitive to begin with. I already was super sensitive. What kinds of things was he verbally abusive about? Well, what I remember the most is affecting me was uh, when I was about 12 or 13, and you you know that's when you are going through your change from childhood, adolescence to teen years. So I was starting to develop, and he would call me um, Fatty Kathy, or 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 you know if I tried to put on a little makeup or I tried you know how girls are dress a certain way. It was like he would always comment in a derogatory manner. And it made me very self-conscious and and, uh, made me feel very, very bad about myself. And the other issue, too, was when he became, when my parents argued, he would go right up to my mom with his fist, and I was always uh, worried about the threat of him physically uh, hitting my mom. And uh, that was a fear, too. Now, when my father was not drinking, which there were times when he did not drink, he he didn't show those behaviors, and he didn't even remember those instances, you know, that he was uh, behaving in that manner. But it just put a constant sense of, of unease and worry. I remember always feeling not centered, always sense of unease. 
so the world that you were in as a child was in a sense really dangerous and scary and threatening and and harmful to you and unpredictable and and chaotic yes and being a shy person to begin with when i would go to school uh, I would project this image of this real introverted, shy girl, and I ended up becoming the butt of jokes a lot because I was different or I looked different or I acted different. And that just um, that just made it even worse. That just added to what was already uh, the trauma I was already feeling, the emotional trauma I was already experiencing. So I felt I had no place really at home, nor with my own peers. It was at that point I tended to go or dwell more on religion, like I was raised Catholic. So I started to dwell more on, you know, the lives of the saints and trying to relate to people who suffered for a good cause. (laughs) But that didn't really, really help. As coping mechanisms broke down like kind of like a domino effect i the psyche seeks out what it can to survive and uh i ended up um creating uh my own inner world to deal with the pain that was going on on the outside world and um what i created and it was on a subconscious level i wasn't consciously aware I was doing it, but what I had created ended up putting me in a worse hell than the one I was, than the the hell I was running away from or trying to get away from. What kind of inner world was it? Was it a very religious world where you're communicating with the saints or what what was that world like? Well, it began with um, saying my rosary on stone in the backyard uh, thinking that if I suffered my knees bled, God would see that and love me, and I, you know, someone would love me. But as that went on, uh, that didn't kill the the mental emotional pain. That wasn't working. And when I when this horrendous depression set in, that it was like I had uh, the weight of of a mountain on my my shoulders. I couldn't hold my head up, and the pain. Um, When that began, uh, I began to lose faith that there was a God, because I couldn't understand how how a God how God could allow one of His children to suffer so much. And then, as it got worse and worse, I started to isolate more. I started to withdraw more. And as that was happening, um, uh, I began to hear voices. And that experience totally threw me off. It was like, oh, my God, it must be the devil talking to me. I must, it it was so alien to me, I couldn't understand it. But at the same time, a part of me thought it was because I was a bad person or not a good person that this was happening. But the experience of hearing voices and the severe heaviness and somatic pain that I was going through was worse than any physical pain I can ever think of. What were the voices like that you heard? Well, the voices that I began to hear were telling me to kill myself, to kill my mother, and to kill my little sister. 
And that was what was terrifying about it. It was terrifying enough to hear the voices, but to hear that, it was like, where in the heck is this coming from? This can't be coming from me. And did they, they felt like they were coming from outside of you. Absolutely. My experience of them were as if somebody had their mouth to my ear and was um, shouting loud whispers. It was as somebody had their face to my ear and was just shouting loud whispers. had the effect of uh, kind of like being around a beehive where there's all this buzzing and then you, the voices, which I heard as loud whispers. Makes me think of some of my own voice hearing experiences, which are also um, similar to like that. And they also can have, not all of them, but they can have that really aggressive, loud, angry, um, angry quality to them. It sounds like you were, as a child, you weren't yourself fighting back or getting angry or, and then maybe the voices sort of had that part of you caught up in them? Is that an interesting way of of looking at it or maybe trying to understand it a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Because for me growing up, it really wasn't okay to have feelings, especially to express feelings of anger. Uh, You know, I was always the good little girl, you know, the good Catholic little girl that, you know, went to Mass every Sunday and was, was the neighborhood babysitter when I was old enough. So, you know, it wasn't okay for me to get angry. And then later on, as I was became 13, 14, and started showing interest in, you know, girl things, it wasn't okay for me to do that either. So uh, all those natural feelings and were, were repressed. And when you repress your, you know, your feelings like that, they just don't go out into thin air. When did you first see a doctor? When did you start getting involved in mental health care and eventually end up in a hospital? I believe I was 17 and a half, and I had gone on this diet and had gone down from 128 to about 110 in three weeks. And that was part of the sort of religious focus of of sort of punishing yourself or trying to get some kind of uh, penance for what was going on? That was part of it, but another big part of it was it gave me some control over what I felt I wasn't able to control. Uh, When I was able to get on the scale and see that I had, through my own um, means, had lost 5, 10 pounds, nobody else did it, I did it, it gave me a sense of importance. It made me feel a little good about myself. Plus, it made me feel that I had some control over something in my life when everything else was so chaotic. I I imagine that's when your parents got concerned about you. That's when they called the doctor or that's when they took some action? Yes. And the first thing um, they did was call, uh, take me to a primary care physician. And uh, he started giving me um, vitamin B shots because the problem he thought was I just needed to gain weight because by then I had gone down to 105 pounds or down to 100 pounds. However, when that didn't work, when I kept losing weight and I began to isolate more and withdraw more, my mom started taking me to this group therapy locally where I lived. And it was through a psychiatric social worker who was a co-facilitator of the group therapy. She saw 
the severity of what I was going through. And she suggested to my mom that that I be uh, hospitalized. And so my first hospitalization, I was put in a medical unit, given all kinds of medical tests. I believe they were looking to see if it was organic, what that which was causing my um, uh, extreme withdrawal and other behaviors. And when that turned out not to be the case, the very next thing was it has to be psychiatric. So while I was in the uh, medical unit, after all those tests, I was seen by a neurologist who referred me to a psychiatrist. And that's my first experience of being hospitalized for a psychiatric condition. And I was hospitalized for two weeks. And that's when I was started on the Stelzine and the Thorazine. What kind of effects did those um, medications have on you? Well, I was finishing my senior year, so it caused me to feel sedated all the time. It also, it, it blunted my affect. I mean, it was like I felt I was in some kind of limbo land. Yeah, it decreased the voices somewhat, but I always knew they were there. And then after a while, the voices would get louder, so they never really truly uh, took away the voices. And also what happened to me was I began experiencing dystonic reactions and akesthesia, akesthesia being, you know, internal restlessness. I was unable to sit down or stay in one spot. There's always this feeling of urgency and the dystonic reactions were actually the worst because I had this stiffness in my jaw and my neck and I kept doing jerking movements that I felt I had no control over. And these were side effects of the medication? These were side effects of the medication, yes. And so here I was on medication that was supposed to help me. It made me even more isolative because I didn't want to go outside and have people see me walking around with my head jerking and all those, uh, you know, symptoms of uh, adverse effects. And then at some point you ended up back in the hospital for three years. Is that right? I had one more hospitalization for 14 days about, uh, I'd say, eight months after that first hospitalization. And after that, um, uh, I was on my way to... Irvine Park with my intention of driving off the cliff there because I was tired of of the fight of dealing with it. And instead, at the last minute, I drove to the psychiatric social worker's home. And she was with me for that evening and called my mom. And she was uh, the one that got me the interview at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. And that's where I was hospitalized for, was from November of 1969 to January of 1973. And so when you went into the hospital, I imagine that must have been really scary for you. And did you just continue to withdraw and get worse? Because eventually they gave you a diagnosis of catatonic uh, schizophrenia. Oh, yes. By that time, I was totally withdrawn. What I had done was that the, the, the voices to kill, my way of dealing with that was to create my own 
voices in my head to counteract those. And they would focus on food, which I never ate. I would keep focusing on food. And to do that, I had to get rid of all external stimuli. Any stimuli that broke its way would disrupt my attention at getting away from the killing voices. And so I was totally, totally in a shutdown mode, just focusing on those thoughts to create voices so I did not have to hear the voices to kill. So you would just sit alone doing nothing? Rocking back and forth. All day for hours and hours? All, all day, yeah. So that was uh, my state of being when I was admitted to UCLA. I know eventually you were very lucky to meet um, Daniel Dorman, the psychiatrist who um, w- was able to help you. Um, but what was kind of the approach of the other doctors and the institution there? They saw you as as incurable. They saw you as just someone who had an illness, a disease, and that was just kind of a tragedy, and they just sort of let you be there? Or what was what was their attitude towards you? Well, in 69, UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute was part of the county system that took, uh, you know, uh, people in uh, that were considered very, very chronic. However, it was a teaching hospital, too. And so I was considered someone that people can learn from because of the severity of my illness back then. I think they were residents there. Dr. Dorman uh, at the time was a resident, and I didn't have much contact with other doctors, but I, I do remember hearing other patients talk about their doctors, and it tended to be about medications. Which had not really helped you at all. No, but Dr. Dorman, my doctor, did not use medications, period. And what he told me was, I want you to, oh, actually, he told my parents this at a meeting. My mom told me this later. He said he wanted me to know that when I got well, that I did it. That it wasn't the medication that you had struggled your way out of this state that you were in. Now, tell us a little bit about um, Dr. Daniel Dorman, who who embarked on three years of regular intensive psychotherapy with you and was able to help you help guide you out of this state that you're in. And the book that he wrote is called Dante's Cure, the idea being, I guess, that if you want to get out of hell, you've got to go all the way through it. Not only go through the experience, but have a guide, not just to go through, because you you need someone there who could be your guide, um, who can support you. And Dr. Dorman, um, he came from a place where he believed in the restorative power of the human person. And no doubt in his life he had experienced things, although never to that degree, that he was helped with. And so he had a true um, calling to really uh, approach the person behind the symptom and to help the person. I remember him saying to me, and this was towards the end of my hospitalization, when I asked him, why did you stick with me for so long? And he said, because everybody has a healing part in them, no matter how small. And that's what I, that's what I approached in you. And I knew that by doing so, it would work out. So what was it like um, being his client in psychotherapy? Because you were completely withdrawn and not even communicating, and you saw him several times a week? I saw him 
five days a week and sometimes six days a week if I was going through any kind of crisis. The several times that I um, attempted suicide uh, happened on a weekend. He would come in and process that event with me. But our meetings were every morning, 8.30 to 9.30. He'd stay the full 55 minutes. And at the beginning, all I would do is just sit there and walk back and forth because I I wasn't I was suspicious of anybody you know nobody had helped before and so I was suspicious of any outside help. However, just by him being there and uh, being present, that caused a little seed to develop. You know, it made me curious a little bit, and then into our therapy sessions about, I'd say, the fourth month, he made a comment about um, it must be very safe where I'm at, uh, referring to the, um, you know, the rocking back and forth and and the silence. Uh, The world can be a pretty scary place. And that's what I remember as really being the trigger that caused me to start paying attention that, huh, you know, what does he know about this? And maybe he's not like the rest of them because he never focused on pathology. He never made me feel I had a diseased brain. He was never trying to do patient education with you to get you to realize that you're schizophrenic or something like that. Absolutely not. That was never, never the case. So for four months, he sat with you, but basically in silence, and you didn't respond. You were just in your own world. And then he commented about how the world must be a really scary place to be feeling like you need to be in a safe place inside yourself. And then something about that really, really reached you. He really spoke to what you were you were going through. And then from from that moment, is that when it slowly, gradually started to become opening up towards him? That's when it, it, the opening up slowly and gradually started. Yes, and again, a lot of the um, a lot of the changes that occurred internally did not sh- manifest outwardly till I'd say the last uh, three or four months I was hospitalized. So even though externally I wasn't showing any improvement. Things were percolating, and Dr. Dorman just never gave up. However, other folks came and went, came and went, and were ended up back in or sent to boarding cares or to state hospitals on medication because they did not see the, they judged the person by their external appearance and the symptoms rather than what was taking place inside. And Dr. Dorman didn't do that. He knew it was going to take a long time. In fact, there came a point in our uh, therapy where I started hearing voices to kill him. To kill doc- to kill Dr. Dorman? Yes. Uh-huh. And so at that point, I'd say that was two years into it, uh, I actually appeared to be getting worse. And there was talk about sending me to Camarillo or I'm too chronic a case. So they were ready to, uh, they were really ready to kind of abandon you to long-term warehousing in the system, just put her on medication, just let her sit there, and that's, and that's it. Absolutely. 
And then how did, what was Dr. Dorman's attitude when you started to get worse, when you were hearing these voices telling you to kill him? He understood, well, later after I got out of the hospital, when we talked about that, what he told me was, I knew that before you're going to get well, it'll get worse, especially when you're, when your whole internal, uh, way of being is being slowly dismantled because that's what was happening to me. My internal psychotic process was slowly being dismantled. And my experience was, and I was developing, uh, you know, uh, trust in Dr. Dorman. And my life experience was to allow myself to trust and get close to anybody meant to be rejected or abandoned or let down. So it was quite a normal thing for those voices to come up. They were kind of like protective, a protective mechanism. That's such an extraordinarily powerful insight that sometimes in the process of working through and making your way out of a psychosis, a, a, a mad place that you're in, an extreme state, sometimes it'll look like it's getting worse, but that's actually part of the process of coming through it. And I've seen again and again mental health professionals and family members and friends will see someone getting agitated or getting angry or or doing something that, that looks like it's actually decompensating or going backwards, but it may just be something that needs to be accepted as a step and a process that's going to lead to them being able to make make it out rather than reacting to that change and then saying, oh, well, this is a sign that things are actually, you know, going backwards and therefore we have to just, um, you know, try and control it or stop it or get the person to take more medications or something. But he had the wisdom to see it as a as a process that says it's a stage in something that you're that you're going through and that something will happen next that will actually will start to help you come out of it. Right. Absolutely. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. You're listening to an interview with Kathy Penny. Kathy is a retired psychiatric nurse who was also diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia and was hospitalized for three years. She has since recovered without medication using psychotherapy, and she is also a founder of Desert Gathering, which is a holistic healing friendship community in Southern California. And what was, when was the moment, do you remember, when you first started to speak and started to communicate with him after you had been in this totally non-communicative place, rocking back and forth? Well, I, I'd say about a year into it, I, I would start making comments or talking. We would talk about ward activities. Um, he'd bring up issues about the ward. How, you know, how's it going? Do you have any um, concerns or whatever? At one point, because my weight had dropped to 80 pounds, the nurses wanted me to, to take Sustigen or be intravenously fed. And uh, Dr. Dorman told me I had to stay at 85 or else he, he couldn't really control uh, not having the Sustigen because it was a health issue. And I remember that's when I really started talking. I saying, I have a right to not eat. I have a right to but he was steadfast about the health issue. Thank God. <laughs> wow. So you, um, so you stood up for yourself, and he kind of struggled with you around that. Yeah, he did. Uh, also, on my care plan, the nurses told me I couldn't go into my my room, which I shared with another lady, 
unless I had four eight ounces eight ounce glasses of water a day, they kept a you know a recording of that intake outtake, and it was hard for me to do that at the time. And I would drink maybe two cups, you know, eight-ounce cups, sometimes three, but it was hard for me to do the four eight ounces. So I remember in our session telling Dr. Dorman, this isn't fair. With that, he did intervene and and say, you know, you don't block or wound just because of that. That's not therapeutic. So I started speaking up for myself, and he listened. He didn't, um, he, he wasn't condescending or looking down on me, he listened. And he always had this collaborative sense of we're in collaboration here. So he didn't necessarily agree with you, for example, when you were not eating to the point of, of, of risking dying. But at the yeah. same time, he had this attitude of really listening to you and collaborating with you and negotiating with you. And and explaining why, why he is, you know, why, what his point of view is, why he's taking this stance. So I wasn't left out in the dark. So once you started to communicate more, how did that develop into you finally getting out of the hospital? Three years into my hospitalization at UCLA, Dr. Dorman finished his psychiatric residency. Um, The plan by the hospital was that I would go to Camarillo because I was considered a chronic mentally ill patient. Camarillo is the big state uh, hospital where people are just kind of dumped and left there to, to die. In warehouse. Warehouse, yeah. yeah. And so he he told my mother that, that he was going on staff at a private uh, hospital in Westwood, and he wanted me to be transferred there. So I was. Instead of him, you know, following with what the hospital wanted, he had me transferred to the Westwood Psychiatric. So for the last six months, July of 72 through December to January, that's when the biggest inroads that you could see outwardly, I was showing signs of improvement because I was in a different environment. It forced me to um, have to uh, pay attention to what was around me because uh, I was put in a, a dorm, actually, at first with three other girls around my age, 19, 20, and all they did was talk at night, and yak and yak, and they talked about some psych tech who they thought was cute. And I remember I wasn't wasn't able to keep my focus on my internal world, you know, creating my own voices so I didn't hear the other voices because they were distracting me. And it really got to me. And I remember telling Dr. Dorman at a session, I need to be in a private room. I'm suffering in there. I can't keep the voices away because these people, you know, these girls. And he, it was then that he told me that, you know, you don't need to be isolate anymore. You, you need to be able to be around people. So in a way, he was showing me his confidence that I was, that I could handle it. And what happened was I started becoming curious about what they were talking about. And in my curiosity, you know, I would uh, start asking questions like, what does being laid mean? Because I actually didn't know what that meant, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> here I was at that, I was 20, 22 in 70, uh, 72, and I didn't even know what that meant. So this the distractions were actually good for me. And see, by this time, through all that inner work at UCLA, I, I had gotten to a, 
a place where I could handle it. I didn't realize I could at the time, but Dr. Dorman did. So he really held a hope for your recovery when you had really given up on it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he never lost faith in me. And, and then it was really starting to have contact with other girls around your age that started to bring you back into regular, ordinary society and, and out of your own world and into consensus reality again. Yes, and, and not only that, but some of the nurse, nursing staff at the private hospital at Westwood, they really took an interest and really went out of their way to to be there for me um, and... Again, you know, I wasn't on meds, and because they knew that that was Dr. Dorman's order, they didn't even talk about meds. Everyone else was, but they were there for me even if I wasn't on meds. They helped me. They helped me with outings, cooking class. I had to literally uh, reorient myself to reality again because, um, you know, being inside so long, it was a real um, kind of a real shocker to not hear voices anymore and to start experiencing things again. Well, it's really remarkable to think about, you know, your own recovery out of that circumstance compared to the other patients that you were with who were often just shipped off to be warehoused and never, ever recovered. And and then to think also about how today the situation is such that, you know, Dr. Dorman wouldn't really likely be able to do such a thing because it would be considered the opposite. It would be considered bad treatment to not give you medications, whereas in fact it sounds like not giving you medications was the very thing that allowed you to take a different path. And Kathy, it has been really remarkable. You you came out of the hospital, you rejoined society, then you actually went on to become a, a psychiatric nurse. Yes, and uh, talk about shock. I became a psych tech licensed first and then an RN, but my first experience going into a psychiatric hospital as staff blew my mind. It was so not what I experienced. It was so not. So I had to really, ooh, I had to go through some of my own issues, really find ways to adjust without hopefully sacrificing my own values and ideals about what I believe. So you saw patients that weren't given the opportunity to recover through a caring relationship with a person over the long term. Not even with a person in the short term. That was what was so sad and distressing that people didn't even have someone to be with them for the short term. It was all about medication compliance, staying on your meds. It wasn't about the person and what the needs of the person were, what they were experiencing and listening to what they can say that would help them. And this is so true even today because I've you know been in hospitals and visited hospitals as an advocate and people are just so eager and needing human connection and wanting that kind of collaboration and someone to listen to and someone to, to talk to and they're just not, that's just not how the hospital system is set up. So you went on to become a psychiatric nurse and then recently just bring us up to date about your life because you're doing a remarkable project in Southern California called DesertGathering.com, which you describe as a friendship community. And it sounds like uh, this friendship community, this network of holistic healing and support, really reflects your own vision for what the mental health system should be based on what worked for you and what you what didn't work for you and the kind of the, the changes that you'd like to see in the mental health system. So tell us about Desert Gathering. Well, Desert Gathering is a... Um, holistic healing and support network 
And our vision is to promote a friendship community for anyone who has had or currently has life challenges, be it physical, emotional, mental, or both. And it's a healing group focusing on healing, exchanging resources, and education, social interaction that focuses on empowerment. The group places everyone on an equal platform without intimidating authority figures. And our intention is to create a non-judgmental forum for people to come together and experience unity through a common language of the heart and in so doing discover meaning and purpose in their lives. So you have people who are diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia and all the different extreme mental health labels, but it's not just focused on them. It's really for everyone. Is that right? It's really a community resource? It's a community resource. And we do have people that come in that have those diagnoses, but that is not what it's focused on. So it's so important. This is really a, a parallel with a lot of what the Freedom Center is doing in Western Massachusetts with our groups that are open to the community and really trying to be have a community development approach rather than a mental health illness approach. Right. And, Will, when I visited you in 2004 with Dr. Dorman, we spoke at Mount Holyoke College, I believe it was. And I also went to the Freedom Center's group there. You you gave me that idea. You inspired me. Uh, you planted that seed in my head that if I ever got the chance, that's what I would want to do because it is so needed and it's so helpful. It's so needed by the community. That's that's such such a great thing to hear, Kathy. I'm glad you were able to realize that vision because Desert Gathering sounds, sounds really amazing. And I, I really do feel like it's um, an idea of a different form a different model of what communities need. They need community support networks and holistic alternatives and from a peer basis and from a everyone welcome basis and hopefully more projects like Desert Gathering and Freedom Center can start to spread around the country. And one of the things that we were talking about before that I think is really interesting is that it sounds like when you were in your most severe state, you were doing something, you were rocking back and forth, you were very shut down, but somehow your body was moving. And can you tell us just a little bit, we don't have a lot of time, but just tell us a little bit about the importance of dance and movement in your own recovery and wellness, because I know that that's something that Desert Gathering offers is is movement groups and dance and movement meditation. Yes. Well, for me, um, I, growing up, I always felt restricted in movement. Uh, It was like, it wasn't okay to dance and to move or, or to, uh, you know, it it felt to me that it was not okay. However, having said that, I always had this inner drive to move, and I could remember being really little, five years old, just turning in circles and moving that way. And as I started growing up and started experiencing the emotional overwhelm, I would the movement, I would go in my room, I would put on records, world records, I would... I would just dance and move, and it really helped me. It really gave me a sense of my, you know, of my body. And during that time, for me, I felt embarrassed about my body. I felt sometimes I didn't even have a body. So movement helped get me back into that. And and I do believe that the rocking was was you know a reflection of of the movement that helped me when I was going through all this. And it's such, for me and for a lot of people, such a healing um, uh, modality, the movement. 
So yeah, we we have movement and we have drumming. Uh, we're at a the Joshua Tree Retreat Center, which has so many wonderful um, programs here of holistic and alternative uh, healing, and that that really focus on mind, body, spirit, and that is really what we are about is is the focusing on the mind body spirit you really can't um, not have one and really expect a person to really um, to really grow and develop to their potential and really you know have self you know to really um, flower you need to have all those three and uh, that's what's missing in in the the public mental health system, the focus is more on the biological. Um, there is biosocial, but even the, the social aspect isn't that great as it you know used to be because of a lot of the the cuts out here. We've, we had our first workshop in November, and it was very successful, and we're planning on having another one in February. Congratulations. Kathy, we are just about out of time. Give us the contact information about Desert Gathering. People want to find out more about it and how they can get in touch with you. Our website is www.desertgathering.com, and um, it tells about our mission statement. And uh, down below, there are contacts. And I, I need to also say that I and Victoria... Williams Manning. Together, we are co-founders. So I, I wanted to get that in. Kathy Penny, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Kathy Penny. She's a retired psychiatric nurse who was also diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. She spent three years in a psychiatric hospital and recovered without medications using psychotherapy. She is a co-founder of Desert Gathering, which is a holistic healing friendship community in Southern California. Kathy's story is the subject of the book by her psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Dorman, called Dante's Cure. And she's also interviewed in the film by Daniel Mackler, Take These Broken Wings. I want to take a moment to recognize the passing of Judy Chamberlain. Judy was a longtime psychiatric survivor activist who was responsible for starting some of the first psychiatric survivor human rights movement organizing in mental health care in the 1960s. She had a tremendous impact on the world of mental health care and inspired many activists and organizations around the country, including being a longtime friend and supporter of the Freedom Center. She was the author of the book On Our Own, which is a manifesto of patients' rights organizing in mental health. Judy was a great friend and organizer of the movement, and she will be deeply missed. You can listen to an interview with Judy Chamberlain on the Madness Radio website, which is madnessradio.net. Just enter the keywords Judy Chamberlain into the search box. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. 
If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.